0: Why do you think there is this renewed interest in UFOs now? And actually, is it really renewed or has it always been a a, a point of fascination, but it's sort of seeming to have its like resurgence, at least in the public sphere and in a sphere that's considered more legit than maybe 5, 10, 15 years ago? Why do you think that is?
1: Yeah, well, I definitely think that the the interest in UFOs has been there the whole time. You know, basically since we started talking about these things back in the 40s, it's it's been fairly consistent. But yeah, it rises and falls in terms of legitimacy and just how present it is in the in the public consciousness. And it's definitely in the zeitgeist right now. But I would say that part of the reason it's having this resurgent is because of where the conversation is showing up. When you have it in the New York Times, when you have it in on CNN, when you have I'm sorry, 60 Minutes on CBS, when you have it in the New Yorker, um, when you have people like Harry Reid and, you know, former military people talking about it publicly on these very sort of mainstream and highly regarded channels. I think that that elevates it in the public consciousness in a way than if it's just showing up on blogs and Twitter and Reddit, um, it doesn't. Um, that being said, you know, the videos that came out that were released in 2017, I think when, uh, Luis mm-hmm. Elizondo, who had been that former Pentagon official who was supposedly in charge of a which is the advanced aerospace threat identification program project, I'm forgetting the acronym, um, But he, you know, he put these videos out in 2017, and I think that that really got a lot of people going like, what is this stuff? Um, One was from 2004, and the other ones were from 2015. So this is clearly, and then talking about the existence of that program, too. I mean, it, it, it gives it a level of validity and of seriousness that maybe most people hadn't attributed to the UFO sphere
0: so when you you've been reporting this podcast that you did um, mm-hmm. over I presume many months um, and just as a reporter what has it been like to try to separate fact from fiction in the story of ufos i mean if people are looking at all this information that's coming at them the average reader reading about it mm-hmm. what should they be looking for in terms of like red flags like oh that's bullshit or oh you know here here's something that's that's that seems uh, more interesting more authentic more truly unidentified like how did you navigate that in your own reporting what were the red flags that you saw versus things that that were more interesting because you presume they might be more authentic?
1: Yeah. So in terms of navigating this, you know, honestly, it feels a little like a quagmire. One thing that kind of raised a little bit of a red flag for me is it's the same people talking over and over and over again. You're hearing from Leslie Kane. You're hearing from Luis Elizondo. You were hearing a lot from To the Stars, although not as much anymore. This is the uh, the To the Stars Academy, which was uh, started by the Blink-182 former rock star Tom DeLonge. Um, And it's sort of the same group of people over and over again. So I guess that was one of the things that kind of made me wonder, you know, how many people are actually talking about this? Or is it sort of a smaller select group? Um, I also think that, you know, some of those stories in the New York Times sounded amazing. But then like two days after one of them came out, probably the most recent one, which was talking about, you know, Harry Reid said, supposedly said there, these are off world vehicles. Mm-hmm. But he actually never said that. And the New York Times ran a correction a couple of days later, but the damage is already done. Like somebody has already run with that story. It's been retweeted. It's been, you know, spread all over the Internet. And most people didn't see that that correction. So those are the kinds of things that, you know, I understand how people get really excited about this stuff, because when you've misquoted someone like Harry Reid, someone with that level of power and that level of, of recognition in society, and it's a quote like that off world vehicles, um, that's going to kind of blow everything out of proportion. But um, yeah, it's it's the other, but the, the flip side of this is, for instance, with Luis Elizondo, initially the Pentagon said, yes, he was involved with, this area of the Pentagon. And now the Pentagon is saying he's never had anything to do with any of these programs. And so then you kind of wonder, well, are you what what's the real truth here? And it's probably somewhere in the middle, but you don't know for sure. And it doesn't seem like you're getting particularly straight answers. So I'll be honest. I mean, even the journalists that I spoke to about this, who are much more in tune with this, who follow it day to day, I'm talking about like Sarah Scholes, who wrote a book about UFO culture and has written tons of stuff for Wired. Um, John Green, who or John Greenwald, who is the uh, he has the uh, the black vault where he's basically been doing FOIA requests of the government about UFO things for forever. Like even they don't have a good sense of exactly what the honest truth is. So I think for most people, it's a good idea to take this all with something of a grain of salt in that There is probably something going on. It is smart for the government and the military to investigate it. It certainly is interesting. Um, It does not, by any stretch of the imagination, mean that it is aliens. Um, And I think that's one other thing, clarification point that needs to be made. A lot of people, when they hear UFO, they think little green men. They Mm -hmm. think aliens. But a UFO is simply that, an unidentified flying object. And... If it, we knew it was aliens, then we would have identified it.
0: So, uh, you know, listening to your podcast, me mm-hmm. being a voracious consumer of anything UFO—I mean, that this is—I guess I—it's kind of weird. I—I I didn't realize this was something of an obsession for me, or at least a mm-hmm. hobby for me, until. Um, my wife basically was like, you realize that this is like all in your free time. This is all you want to read about and you read space books and you watch <laughs> Cosmos. And I was like, oh, my God, this has become my hobby. I, I didn't even yeah. realize this. I, I have my own feelings about what I think are the most potentially legit versus uh, a lot of bullshit. And I'll give you mine and I'd love to hear yours. Mine, I, I mean, based on what I know – I think that these videos, they do certainly suggest something – Un- unidentified, at least officially unidentified. I want to put an asterisk on that. Sure. I don't necessarily believe when the government's like, we don't know what this is, or you know, I've never, we've never heard of this, or, like, I, I don't believe. I, I'm a report. I'm a political reporter. I don't tend to believe mm-hmm. the official story, no matter what. So, if, so I saw. I happened to see a a. There was a Tucker Carlson. Um, uh, he did a rant about this, about how you know the Pentagon saying that it doesn't care about this stuff. It hasn't really been following this stuff, and, and then. Tucker Carlson got all mad about that and my my initial reaction is why do you believe that the Pentagon doesn't when it says it doesn't know about this or doesn't care about this why why would you why would you believe that like i don't i don't believe that if that if there have been unidentified flying objects uh near the uh, Norfolk military bases that if the if a Pentagon person says that they don't care about this they haven't even they're not even paying attention to it i just don't believe that like i don't i don't presume that that's true so all of that's to say is that I believe that, yes, there are those unidentified flying objects that we saw in the videos. Mm-hmm. If you made me um, guess what those things are, I would guess that there's some sort of either DARPA program, one of ours, uh, Chinese technology, um, another foreign government's uh, uh, military projects. I don't initially presume that that is uh, off-world extraterrestrial technology. Mm-hmm. That said, I think the me- uh meteor or projectile or a- 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 you know, celestial body, if you want to call it that, the meteor, that f- the body that flew into our, uh, I think it was our solar system and then flew out, that to me is a lot more compelling as something that may be... Um, something otherworldly with some form of technological intelligence. That's where I come down. I, I'd like to know in your reporting where you come down in terms of what you think is um, the, the most likely to be something actually otherworldly versus things that are mo- more likely to be, uh, if they do exist, kind of, uh, high tech military, or by the way, it could be private sector too.
1: Right. Oh yeah. I was actually thinking, you know, there's a lot of billionaires billionaires Mm -hmm. out there with a lot of money and a lot of interest in space. So there's no reason to rule that out Mm -hmm. either. Um, I think you're totally right about the military not being upfront. I mean, they're not going to tell us, a lot of stuff and for tucker carlson not that i really give a rip about his opinion (laughs) but for him to get upset that the military is not being honest it's like dude they traffic in secrets like well actually
0: it was it was worse i just to, to be clear he was saying he was mad at the pentagon not for being dishonest he was saying basically the pentagon is telling us it doesn't know what these things are and that it really hasn't taken these things seriously and then tucker was mad at the Pentagon for supposedly not taking these things seriously. In other words, he took them yeah. at their word that they don't care or that they well, don't know about the these, which is mistake. ridiculous. Right. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um. Yeah. I mean, you know, the Pentagon also said everything was going well in Afghanistan. So, you know, <laughs> right. take, take that kind of with a grain of salt. Um, but to your point, you know, I think it's worth being open-minded about these things. But Science still has to play a role in this and we have to go about this in a scientific fashion. We have to find evidence that actually is can can show that these things are otherworldly or, you know, um, some sort of like bug in the machine or some sort of, you know, for all we know, it's uh, it it could be someone hacking into radar systems and and messing, um, you know, foreign foreign powers messing with us that way. Um uh, to I, be clear
0: you you're saying you're saying messing with the scopes that we're using yes. to show that, that these images could actually be a, a, a bug in the radar itself.
1: Yeah, that is that's one of the possibilities that has been presented uh and one of the things that the Pentagon should definitely be investigating because if that's a flaw in the system mm-hmm. you definitely want to fix that. Um that being said, you know, it is it's it's worth considering all of the possibilities, but I think you really have to go with um, you have to go through this in a systemic and scientific fashion. And I hope that even if the Pentagon is not is saying that they're not interested and they're not doing this, that there actually are. And chances are they probably are. I just can't see them, you know, letting people play in their sandbox or letting things show up in their in their um, military operations areas. And just being like, "Ho hum, no big deal you know i i well, I I'm just picture.
0: think it's like I've worked in government before, and i mm-hmm. i i don't underestimate the idea that the left hand doesn't talk to the right hand very often that, Yeah, i you know agree like with that. DARPA may not be talking to the the pentagon branch that's that's answering questions who may not be talking to you know the folks out at area 51 who are doing um you know aerodynamics testing like i just like i think we presume there's this one giant thing called the the government mm-hmm. and actually a lot of them are not actually talking to each other so it's not like it's not clear to me that like the the government speaks with really with one voice on this stuff yeah and, and so and so and, and my other takeaway from all of this is that and i'm not a a, a super science guy but like the distances are so Mm mind-boggling between us and even the next closest star that it is much easier to believe that the identification of extraterrestrial intelligence will take place through light speed communications aka radio waves or or you know other uh, other energy uh transmissions traveling into the universe then Uh, sort of little green men actually just showing up here. I mean, do you think that's the right way to think about it?
1: That's how I tend to agree with it. I think that actually what the work that's being done by SETI Mm -hmm. and, you know, some of the work that is now being done by NASA now that the taboo has kind of been lifted in terms of like, you know, biotechnological signatures and looking for signs of potential life way out there, as opposed to on this planet, make a lot more sense in terms of finding extraterrestrial life. Um, but I did want to talk about Oumuamua a little Please, bit and yes. Avi Loeb's um, statement that, you know, this is a uh, an alien light sail. And if, and um, if you
0: can, just g- give everyone sort of a, a background. on, I think sure. a lot of people forget what happened.
1: Yeah. So in, I think this was also in 2017, I believe this was in October of 2017. It was this sort of sunny day in in Hawaii. And they were going through the images from the Pan-STARRS telescope, which is on top of Mount Kea. I'm probably getting that wrong. I have to remember. Um, Anyway, one of the big telescopes on Hawaii and they saw this object that was moving in all of the in the photos from in the images from the evening before. And they saw this object sort of moving through at a much faster pace than it should have been. And and, you know, they they started paying much more attention to this. And in doing so, realized that this was some sort of interstellar object that had come from beyond our solar system and was passing through and would sort of eject out of it again Um, The reason they know it's from outside our solar system, it was not, it did not have a bound orbit, which means it was not bound by the sun's gravity. It was going to come into our solar system and then leave again. And, you know, it was moving fast. It had this weird shape, which they could tell because of the way that uh, the light was reflected off of it. It was not hewing to the trajectory that they had expected and they couldn't see why, Um, mostly often with comets, you'll see sort of a trail of dust and gas behind it. And with this, they couldn't see what was propelling it. So they were kind of, you know, there were questions about that and it was just weird. And it was also like the first interstellar object that we had seen that we know about. This is the first time we've had the kinds of instruments available to us that could recognize it for what it is. So most scientists, I think, argue that it's a, a comet, um, simply passing through. It's been violently ejected from some other star system, you know, millions, billions of miles away. Um, but Avi Loeb, who is, was the head of the astronomy department at Harvard, he made the argument that, Hey, this could be an alien light sail. This could be some sort of, uh, off-world technology that is passing through our solar system, taking photos, sending it back, and then moving on to the next thing. Um, you know, it's not an impossible idea. Uh, but again, we have to go back to science with this Is in how much can we prove? How much can we know? And with this, we can't know a lot. It's already gone. There's no way we're going to catch up to it. There's no way we're going to know for sure. Some of the arguments I heard against that are, you know, if it was taking pictures of the solar system, it kind of missed Earth. So it didn't really know we were here, perhaps. Um, and then... I think the other complaint against it was I'm blanking on this right now and I'd have to go back and look at my notes, but you know, the point that Avi Loeb was making, at least when I talked to him is that people need, you you need to have something of an open mind. Mm -hmm. We sort of bounce all kinds of crazy ideas off of each other and think about all kinds of crazy ideas in physics and other parts of science. So why is the idea that it could be a, extraterrestrial technology that insane and it's not it's definitely worth considering but again you have to go about it in a pretty scientific way you can't just assume that it is extraterrestrial technology
0: on the Uamua uh projectile if you will mm-hmm. uh, to me one of the most compelling parts of that argument that it may be something other otherworldly is at least, as far as human knowledge is concerned, it really is it f- at least from our perspective, it really was truly rare It's not like th- th- like these kinds of things are happening all the time. I remember when I read the news stories about this i, I didn't really get it. I was like i think I thought things were just sort of flying around all over the place, you mm-hmm. know you know sort of and then but but the 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 how uncommon it is, really the first time that we've seen something not adhere to the typical ways celestial bodies, non-intelligent celestial bodies move uh, vis-a-vis gravity and the like. That to me was the thing that stuck out as like, oh, that's actually really interesting, how rare this, this thing actually is. Is that the right way? And it, was that basically what uh, the Harvard uh, astronomer Avi Loeb was? Is that one of the things he was sort of saying?
1: Yeah, I, you know, the rarity is up for debate simply because until recently, like in the past few years, we really haven't had the technology to Mm. see this kind of stuff and recognize it for what it is. So we could be seeing these kinds, we could have been seeing these things a lot more often. We just didn't recognize them. We didn't know what they were. Um, there was a second, uh, interstellar object that was seen maybe last year or 2019. Um, a, an amateur astronomer in Crimea, I believe, um, caught sight of it and Pointed it out to you know professional scientists with the right tools and they were able to identify that one as another interstellar Mm -hmm. object So I think they're out there. They may yeah, they're probably not as common as say, you know, the shooting stars that we see on a regular basis, but I don't think that it's um, As rare as we had initially thought
0: understood So let's talk a little bit about the politics of of all of this. Um, There is a fascinating story in your podcast, uh, which is called Wild Thing. That's the second season of Wild Thing. The first season uh, was on Bigfoot, which was terrific also. I highly recommend it to everybody who's listening. Um, There's a fascinating story about Nevada Senator Richard Bryan. Mm -hmm. uh, And I guess you'd call it the closing of the government's, if not its exploration of this, then it's sort of official, officially funded programs to study this stuff. T- tell us a little bit uh, about that. Uh, if you can, recount like a kind of a summarized version of what was going on. Because I th- I, I, frankly thought that the, the story itself was interesting. And then mm-hmm. to remember back to the, ni- I think it was the 1990s, yeah. the sort of the budget politics of the time and how it was couched in a in an austerity, kind of very conservative, we have to tighten the budget kind of uh, rhetoric. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so this kind of goes back actually to the, I'm going to back up a little bit before this into the 70s. And, you know, the National Academy of Sciences in the 1970s said that uh, it, it recommended that we look for life beyond the solar system. And they said that SETI, which is the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, which as a side note, I always thought was just like one institution, but is actually like a whole field of field of study, like, Mm -hmm. you know, physics or um, biology. Uh, In any case, it listed this search for extraterrestrial intelligence as an important component of exobiology. So biology off of Earth. And then you know, so this is in the seventies, the government is saying, go for it. NASA's involved in it. They're interested in it. Search for smart aliens kind of thing. And then this becomes a big sort of political football, I think would be the best way to phrase it because, you know, it had a a low probability of success. Space is enormous and the tools we have to try and look for life are fairly rudimentary, especially in the seventies. And that required you know a level of sort of imagination and speculation and what if which is not exactly uh, how politicians want to build budgets necessarily and they thought that the money could be better spent on earth so the first time you know in 1978 Rich, richard Proxmire a little bit of richard proxmire and i'm forgetting Will where, Bill
0: Proxmire William Proxmire was it william proxmire yes from from the the the, um, from Wisconsin. He was kind of this oh, pop, right. so this populist. Richard, Richard right.
1: Bryant, William. Yeah, you're right. right. So he awarded, you know, his golden fleece award right. for wasting government funds on to, to SETI. Um, and then in the early, but this, you know, SETI kind of continues to chug along and, you know, it's a little bit underfunded, but it's still going. And then in the early 1990s, NASA finally starts its first SETI observations and part of a project that had been, had been going on for years, And then 1993, this is when uh, Richard Bryant from, Richard Bryant from Nevada, he was sort of a self-proclaimed enemy of waste, fraud, and abuse, and he put an amendment into the 1994 federal budget that just said, no more, no more little green men, we're done with this. Um, So, and the, the budget went through, and that was the end of NASA's work on SETI, and they were not allowed to keep going, this, all the SETI programs.
0: So so what's interesting here is that you're tracing a history of taking s- a genuine scientific program mm-hmm. and it being portrayed slowly but surely as a spending boondoggle. Now, I, I worked in Congress for the Appropriations Committee in the uh, early 2000s, and mm-hmm. what was always the Republican tactic um, was they would pull out something that sounded uh, ridiculous.
1: The sex lives of monkeys or something like yeah, that. Yeah, or like,
0: I remember back when I was, I think it was like cow farts. Like, we're studying <laughs> cow. How are we spending $2 million to study cow right. farts? And you're like, actually, it's a study of methane gas, which is destroying the planet. And right. like, right, like you can take anything or a lot of things in science, and if you if you sort of portray them in one way and you zero in on one detail, you can make them sound ridiculous. But we know that especially on basic R&D, basic research, right? The 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 non-specific, we're sort of fumbling around trying to find, you know, the, you know, elemental discoveries, which then can become, uh, you know, applied, uh, you know, applied techniques that they can seem ridiculous. I mean, am I wrong to, to, to have a takeaway from the story that you recount about Richard Bryan as it being actually... It was portrayed initially as ha ha ha. Look at this boondoggle of SETI. To actually, we can look back on it, even though SETI hasn't found anything uh, yet, that we can look back on and be like, no, actually, that's that's there's kind of like an anti-science uh, attitude I- I embedded in there. I don't want to extrapolate it all the way to like climate change and the like, but it, there is kind of something anti-science about portraying basic scientific research as a kind of wasteful, frivolous exercise. I'd be curious if you you think that's the right way or the wrong way to look at it.
1: I think that's not incorrect. I think there is a tendency to think short term. Um, And I think it's like, what is this doing for us right now? Spending this money right now, what does this do for us in the moment? And, you know, when you're doing a budget every single year, maybe that that, that seems like it's kind of an inbuilt flaw. And I imagine it applies to other things besides besides science. Um, but, you know, people in Congress are representing their districts, supposedly, and the district says that's not the kind of stuff I want to be spending money on things, or they have concerns about infrastructure or, you know, other more in-the-moment desperate needs. And so these kinds of more esoteric unknown, like we don't know what we're going to find necessarily kind of questions and explorations get seen as being frivolous. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I spoke with Neil deGrasse Tyson at one point and he kind of made an interesting point. He said, you know, governments have part of government's role is doing research that doesn't have an immediate economic impact. And the example that he gave was of darpa and some of the work that they do um he was he spoke specifically about um you know the internet and the work that darpa had done on that in the early early days and at the time a lot of what they were doing granted this was sort of top secret and it's not quite the same as the things that go through the regular legislative legislative session but Top secret. It was top secret. But at the time, it was like, we don't know how this is going to work out. We don't know if this will work. And then you think about, well, where where are we now? What if they hadn't put that kind of time and effort into trying to, you know, pull this information or or create this system we would live in a very different world and i mean i guess there are some people right now who would say well maybe we're better off with the, the internet because it <laughs> it doesn't look like it's going very well um
0: well but, but they, i mean know, the flip side of all of this is the hmm. conspiracy theory if you will uh, on the other side which is and i, and I don't mean that pejoratively but and, and right. maybe conspiracy theory is the wrong word but folks like noam chomsky uh who you know i have great respect for noam chomsky you know he's he's you know a a true icon and speaking the truth. I mean, he has uh, has written about how, whether it was deliberate or not, that a lot of Pentagon spending uh, has essentially been a veneer for direct R&D spending, yeah. particularly in the high-tech sector. Uh, mm-hmm. And that if you want to do basic research on... Uh, basic scientific research in American culture, the easiest way to get funding for that. the easiest way to make a political argument for that is to shroud it in the language of national security and, and, yep. and move it through the pentagon but Of course, there are those who we 've gotten some readers who 've emailed us we've, we've, we, on some of the stuff that we've we 've put out there on on you know we 've linked to some stories about the you know, the UFO stuff, and some of the feedback we 've gotten is well, how do you know that the resurgence of interest in ufos that the government especially now at least acknowledging that there are these unidentified uh aerial objects uh how how can we be sure that this isn't essentially a pr ploy by the national security apparatus to continue to get itself more funding and i you know, I I don't want to discount that either. I mean, like, I guess, I guess. So on one side, there's like a portraying SETI as a boondoggle is kind of anti-science.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: On the other side, there's like how much are people, how much are folks in in the national security state. Wanting to promote this in order to continue to create a rationale for what I would call wildly out of control uh, Pentagon spending—that any kind of national security scare that can be out there uh, uh, continues to create a culture of let's spend you know more and more money on the military. Well, what's your what's your take on that?
1: Well, I don't think that that's an insane idea, and I would. I you know I mean there there's precedent for this there's precedent for spending crazy amounts of money mm-hmm. um because it is seen as a national security issue and you know did we really need to spend that kind of money probably not on some of those things um I think I guess what would maybe give me more peace of mind is if I saw the national security apparatus also collaborating with NASA also collaborating with different astrobiology um, programs with, you know, a wider range of scientists who are removed from the national security apparatus and perhaps being more transparent with the kinds of work that they're trying to do on this. I mean, ultimately, if you are going to truly explore the UFO question or the UAP question, as it's now referred to, you have to bring a lot of scientists into the mix. It can't just be um, a, a military type you know, run organization. You've got to bring in NASA. You've got to bring in the you know the space agency. Are are you concerned about off-world threats? Then you need to be bringing in like everybody from around the world. If you're concerned about terrestrial, um, I think you still need to be bringing. If you if you don't know what's going on, if you genuinely are trying to understand what this is, it needs to be bigger than just what the military uh, is doing. And I guess maybe that's an argument for why this why Noam Chomsky might rewrite is because it's sort of being held very close to the vest by the military in what they're doing and what they're exploring.
0: I mean, we all, I think a lot of people laughed at the, the so-called space force, right? The yeah. you know, Donald Trump space force just sounds yeah. s- so, so ridiculous. I mean, mm-hmm. to be, to be, to be fair, I think the most political f- and in our face happening now or in the very near future in terms of the politics of space are going to be topics like how do we deal with space junk? Uh, yeah. Which Asteroid
1: is a... protection. Asteroid protection. With yeah. the loss of uh, Arecibo telescope when that collapsed last year, that was one of our biggest tools in being able to detect asteroids that could be a threat to Earth.
0: Oh God, it's like terrifying. Okay. So there's, there, there, there's, there's that, uh, right. there's, there's who controls, uh, the moon, uh, I, and, I don't, yeah. and, 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 uh, lunar, lunar mining, uh, the Mars. Near, yeah, exactly. I mean, and the, and by the way, the moon, the moon's centrality to getting to Mars doesn't mm-hmm. get talked about nearly enough, which is that there essentially the moon in theory is going to be a base of potential, uh, propellant, meaning the ice on the moon being right. mined to then be used, uh, to fuel uh a a craft to mars i know that all sounds like super sci-fi that's actually one of the big theories about how we're actually going to send people to Mars is that you mm-hmm. essentially get a ship off of, the, uh, off of the, the Earth. It takes so much fuel to get off of the Earth, but then you refuel it essentially near the moon. And once you have fuel in space in a, in a, in a vacuum, you need much less fuel. The whole idea right. of packing all your fuel to get to Mars and then get back is, is essentially impractical. So figuring out who controls the moon, all that, like that's the real policy. Politics of space. Although your podcast also touches on something that also is terrifying, um, which is <laughs> which is the whole notion of if extraterrestrial life is out there, billions of, of miles away, well, you know, light mm-hmm. years away. Who is controlling what we're actually blasting out there? Right? Who like? There are really no, you know, regulations nope. at all about what we're sending off planet out into the universe. Now, I'm not saying that we need, you know, I'm not calling for, you know, I'm not saying we need like some giant uh, set of regulations or restrictions, but it's kind of crazy to think about the fact, and that's, you the beginning of the movie Contact, which mm-hmm. is, if I remember this, it's a great movie, which is about how... The aliens, you know, light many light years away, send back the transmission, the first transmission they got from Earth, which in the movie was a video of Hitler. Uh, And, you know, the government officials like, oh, this must be a hoax. They're sending us Hitler videos. It's ridiculous, right? But actually, the transmission at the Olympics of Adolf Hitler's speech was essentially the first off-world transmission that we blasted out into the universe. So, I mean – there's no regulations for that. No one's really thinking about that. Maybe it doesn't matter, but maybe it does. And so that one question I have for you on all that is like this philosophical question of: Should we really want to make contact with extraterrestrial life? I mean, I I'm I'm one of three books into the Three Body Problem uh, oh, uh, trilogy, okay. yeah. mm-hmm. and like th- 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 that's sort of a central question in that in that trilogy which is you we think we want to make contact but wait a minute do we really do we do we like the second book in that series is called dark forest which is essentially a a a, a reference to the idea that if you're in a big forest uh you don't want to light a fire uh, in the middle of the night because that alerts all the predators to where you are. Now, I realize that I, 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 even as I say it, I'm like, do I sound insane by saying that? But I'm just curious. <laughs> Have you been like,
1: watching Alien lately? <laughs> uh, uh,
0: yeah, right. Like, I mean, do you think we should want to make contact? Like, and, and in your reporting, did you find either scientists or other, you know, either government folks or folks in the, in the, in the world that's around this thinking about that actual question?
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, Stephen Hawking is famous for saying don't send messages out because you don't want to end up in the kind of situation where they exactly what you're talking about, lighting a signal fire in a dark forest. And then these predators come, aliens come and they strip mine our planet and, you know, turn us into batteries or, you know, I think uh, Hawking um he compared it to when um, the uh, the Europeans made it to the New World and basically decimated all of the the native and indigenous populations mm-hmm. that were living there. Um, and actually, that's another thing to consider: is you know we just came off a year of a little over a year of pandemic. Um, they might bring some sort of crazy virus. Uh, they might not mean to kill us, but they might do it anyway. But I think a lot of the scientists I spoke to think that that risk is very, very small, especially since we don't even know if there's anything else out there yet. And part of the way to find out if there is, is going to be by communicating. At some point, we're going to have to expose ourselves. And at some point, there's going to be a level of, of risk involved in, in reaching out and seeing what is out there. Um, the nice thing about this is, you and I will probably be long gone if the aliens do come and eat all of us. So that will not be how you die.
0: <laughs> well, that's that's morbidly reassuring. That's that's <laughs> m- morbidly reassuring. So I want to end this conversation just going back to um, going back to to where we started, which is about the the legitimacy of this, mm-hmm. the the how this has been sort of perceived as kind of illegitimate. If you had to kind of wave a wand and, and and have the best outcome from all of this, well, what would the best outcome from all of this uh, upsurge in interest be? Is it, you know, more funding for sending people to Mars? Is it more funding for SETI? Is it, you know, like what, like what, what's the good future? in which the momentary spotlight on UFOs uh, actually does something good for society? And what's the like bad future where it just, I mean, I, I presume the bad future is like, it just justifies more and more military spending on things that, you know, the Pentagon wanted to fund anyway, and now they have a new excuse to fund it. In your mind, what's the good and bad outcome of this upsurge in interest in UFOs?
1: I would agree with the bad. I think if this is just an excuse to get more funding for Pentagon programs that really benefit the Pentagon and maybe not the rest of society, I find that to be kind of crappy. Um, I would love to see more money actually going to SETI. And maybe for SETI scientists, you know, let's say that there we can't find any sort of real apparent terrestrial uh, explanation for this after true scientific rigorous exploration of it um maybe more money going to SETI and them being able to really put some time and effort into finding out what this might be um you know and the other thing is is there's this assumption i think that's out there that all of these things that we're seeing are the same thing and it could be a whole wide variety mm-hmm. of phenomena that we just don't have a good grasp on there yeah there could be actual physical objects that are drones operated by a, a foreign entity or a non-state actor. Um, it could also be some sort of like crazy physics phenomenon that if you're going Mach 9, or however fast that they're going, um, it is it causes some sort of like crazy bend in physics that we have not understood before. I just think there's a lot of things that could be going on that would be worth actually exploring from a purely scientific standpoint. Um, rather than just a military or defense one.
0: I mean, the, again, I go back to the the idea of of how vast these distances really are, and they're so mind blowing that, like, I I think I saw somebody, I think I saw a tweet that somebody said, um, what the you know, oh my god, the UFO is moving at thirteen thousand miles an hour, you know, the 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 the, the supposed UFO, uh, yeah, uh, in the video in sixty minutes, and somebody did the calculation that it would take an object moving at that speed 250,000 years to get to the next nearest star. Um and it's just kind of mind-blowing. Oh, and I, I b- before we go, I would I want I I've been meaning to ask this.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Out of all of the the technologies that you heard about, the theories that you heard about, what do you think is the one or two most promising that will uh, Whether allow us to detect extraterrestrial life or at least allow us to travel much farther into the cosmos. To me, you know, I've been reading a lot about light sails and Mm -hmm. the actual possibility of using – of us using light sails is – like I'd be curious your take on, on that and if you have a, a good way to explain what a light sail is, I'd love to hear that. But if there's anything else that I'm missing that's like you bumped into that you're like, that, would, you know, that really sounds like something promising that could change – that could actually fundamentally change the game in this space of in – this, in this part of the science world.
1: Yeah, I think short term, I'm pretty excited about some of these space telescopes and these huge, like highly technological telescopes that are about to come online. There's one known as the James Webb, which has taken longer than they expected and is probably way over budget. It's like the big dig of space. Um, But that is supposedly going up in the not too distant future. And I think that that is going to give us a really amazing uh, view of our solar system and our galaxy that we haven't had before. I think about all the things that Kepler discovered and the Kepler telescope program space telescope program was basically the, the space telescope that identified all these exoplanets, all these planets that are orbiting around stars that are not our sun, like thousands of them. Uh, and prior to that, we kind of were, you know, that was a very speculative, um concept. So I just this new telescope that's going up, I think there's a lot of potential for things to be discovered in terms of maybe finding biosignatures and also just having a better understanding of the universe we're in. Long term, I am completely fascinated by the light sail thing. Like this concept, I'm gonna see if I can explain it um, in a way that is fast and makes sense. But essentially you have a um uh what's the best way to do it Uh, 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 i'll try to i'll
0: try to so you tell me where i'm wrong how about this Uh, the way i understand it from reading about it is you have like a giant essentially sheet uh and i mean giant like the size of an entire state or the size even of the of the united states but it's oh you're way
1: big yeah it's too big
0: (laughs) oh i'm okay so i'm not okay so so smaller than that i
1: yeah, I found a, I found a my explanation for it. I'm Good. gonna try and break Go it down. It. But essentially, what this is is it's a teeny tiny probe. It's basically the size of a postage stamp. Right. And they get launched. There's a whole passel of these that get launched into space in um, sort of a, a a satellite orbiting close to Earth. It'll house thousands of these, and each one is attached to an extremely thin sail. The sails are probably about. Three feet, three to four feet uh, square. Oh, I was wrong. Okay, right. Okay. (laughs) Okay. And um, so when the probe is deployed from this satellite, the sail will unfurl, and then that carries the probe through space toward its destination. Now, the way it's powered, because there's not really wind in space, is they have this bank of lasers on the ground. And this is what's huge. On the ground, on Earth. On Earth, right. And this is like a kilometer and a half across, so uh, I'm trying to... I can't translate that to Imperial, I just you know think think big, yep. um, and it's packed with all these uh, lasers and mirrors that are getting up to like a huge amount of power, and then it shoots that laser beam conglomerate up into uh, towards the sail, and the sail it's the the light is pushing the sail um, I mean the, and the, the,
0: the theory or the not theory the the reality is is that the light has some mass Mm -hmm. like light actually does have some mass. So by concentrating the light against a like whatever it is, unbelievable. I mean, I, I, somebody said like the, 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 the thinness of the sail is like two uh, um, not two atoms, but two molecules or something really thin so that the the concentrated light acts as like wind, like a blast of wind against the sail.
1: Right. And then, you know, something like this, which A, doesn't have to have escape Earth's gravity, um, and B, doesn't have like a massive payload that it's carrying with it because this, you know, this little probe is only about the size of a a postage stamp, you know. Uh, It's a gram weight, I think. And... That can move really, really fast. I think maybe 20 percent the speed of light, right. which means you know Alpha Centauri. I think they said you know Alpha Centauri is our next nearest neighbor. Four light years, system. three light years four, something like that. Yep, yeah. four light years away. And with the current rate of space travel that we have available to us right now, it would take thousands of years to get there. And with a light sail, it would take about 20, which is mind blowing. Right. Um, and you just think about. Again, these are still long timeframes and they probably sound like huge, like just, you know, they still have to create this thing and build it and send it out there. And so it it seems like these very long timescales, but given how big space is like this, this contracts it, if that makes sense in a way that nothing else we've come up with
0: yet has. And apparently light, light sales are, I mean, we're not there yet, but it's not something that's like, you know... So, that's something that we could see, I mean, I think in our lifetime, maybe like, it's not something like, Oh, we got, we, you know, it's going to take a thousand years to develop I and mean, maybe it will, but like mm. folks who think about this, think that this is like something that that could actually be developed or am I wrong?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. I mean, they, they, they've got former NASA scientists working on this project. Now this is actually privately funded by a guy named Yuri Milner, who mm-hmm. is a Russian billionaire uh, as part of a series of projects that he had at the breakthrough initiatives. Um, and so this one is called Breakthrough Starshot. But the guy who I spoke to who's working on its name is Pete Klupar. He worked for NASA for forever. And, you know, he even he said that this potentially could happen in his lifetime. And he's a little older than than we are, I think. So uh, it's it's pretty exciting stuff. And the potential is great. And, I you know, that's part of the reason I want SETI and some of these other more science-based organizations to get some of that uh, sweet, sweet government money rather than all of it going to the Pentagon.
0: Laura Krantz, uh, thank you so much for taking time uh, today. And thank you for your your podcast, Wild Thing, uh, Space Invaders. I, I should tell folks who are listening, it is something that not only I uh loved but my son and i really bonded over my my 10 year old son isaac just absolutely loved it i mean he just could not every time we got in the car he was like turn on the next episode so it's (laughs) it's really you really did a great job with it and you really did a great job by the way with the with the first uh season on on big on bigfoot which was also terrific so i highly recommend it uh we will put a link to uh the your podcast in the write-up of this podcast thank you so much for your work and um you know, if you're doing another season, please let me know and please and I will certainly be sure to let my son know. He was all extremely excited that I'm interviewing you uh today. So he, I told him about it. He was like super excited about it. So thank you so much for your work. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, and I'm really glad to hear that he enjoyed it as much as you did. I had not when I initially made these podcasts had not meant them. I not really thought about kids, but they have really appealed to like a wide family audience. So that's been pretty exciting to see kids get super excited about science and grownups too.
0: Really, really great work. Thanks again. Thanks for your time today.
1: Thank you. Take care.
0: Okay, take care.